Give it up for the band. That was awesome. Good job, guys. I love it when Corey plays. He's, like, closer to our age, so, you know, he, like, I loved him. But Corey, you know, he just touches a, a different part of your heart, you know. Uh, my name is Jacob. I am the youth director here at Desert City. Uh, if you couldn't tell by the fact that I'm wearing Vans on stage, I am a, a youth pastor. Most of the time, I'm with uh, middle school and high school students over there in the youth room. Um, and I love my job, guys. It's so much fun. And uh, today's message is going to feel a little bit between like a, uh, a real sermon and like a, somewhat of like a youth talk, because that's kind of like my style now, so I can't help it. Uh, and since I only get to preach a couple times a year, I thought I would pack three sermons into one for you guys today. So we're going to have a three-point sermon, but each point could probably be its own sermon. You guys are getting more bang for your buck by showing up to church today when it's really hot outside, so you're welcome. Um, before we talk about Exodus chapter 16, I want to tell you guys a little bit about me. So I love mountain biking, I love rock climbing, I love doing all sorts of outdoorsy stuff, but what I also love secretly, and I don't tell people this all the time, is I actually really love watching movies. Uh, I love, I, I'm really excited for uh, the Christopher Nolan movie Oppenheimer to come out on Friday. I'm going to see it Saturday, hopefully. I'm not going to see Barbie with it, because that would be weird. The, there's like a thing on the internet where people are going to watch them back to back, because that's weird. Um, but yeah, so I, I love Christopher Nolan movies. I love uh, the cinematography of him. I love how like he can like evoke a mood and like just all this like epicness, like just because of like the way he positions the camera. I love movie scores. I love listening to Hans Zimmer. I'm kind of weird, and I'll just like go and listen to Hans Zimmer soundtracks in my free time because I want to feel like I'm in like a Batman movie all the time. Apparently, uh, so those are two reasons I love movies. But the main reason that I love movies is because of the stories that movies tell and the way that they can tell them. I love, when I'm watching a movie, to figure out what the director and what the, the producer, what they're trying to communicate through this movie. And it kind of bugs my friends and people who watch movies with me, because afterwards I'm like, but what was like the true meaning of the story? Like, what were they trying to like tell us through like this person dying and like this explosion? And they're like, don't worry about it. Like, it was just a good movie. And I'm like, no, but I have to know. And so I love looking for all these, like, hidden meanings in movies. And I think the movies that do this the best are actually Pixar movies. Specifically, one of my favorite Pixar movies is the movie Cars. Have you guys seen the movie Cars yet? Okay, hopefully. It came out nearly 20 years ago. Um, I was probably, like, six years old when this came out. So this was, like, a movie for, like, my generation. Uh, but, yeah, the movie Cars... Uh, and, and in all Pixar movies, there's multiple stories going on within the main story. The, the first level is kind of for like a five-year-old to understand that race car gets lost. They probably don't even remember his name. They might remember his name, Lightning, Lightning McQueen. But race car gets lost. Race car finds friends. Race car takes friends. And race car uh, celebration at the end. That's probably, if you're a five-year-old, that's probably like the main idea of the story that you understand. But if you're an adult... This is a story about somebody who's gotten caught too much up in their fame. They've forgotten the true meaning of things. They've forgotten why they do what they're doing. And through a series of unfortunate events, through life's trials, they realize that winning isn't everything that life is about. And through the, the, all the bad things that happen to them, their character actually changes, and they become the type of person who doesn't need to win. That's the adult level of the story of Cars. 
And just like how in Pixar movies and in good movies, there's a deeper meaning to each story. There's multiple levels of stories going on. The Bible is exactly the same. The rabbis of old would call the Bible, like would, would say that the Bible is like uh, looking at a diamond through a light. Like I held up a diamond right here. If I turned it one angle, I'd see one thing. And then if I turned it again, I'd see another thing. And if I turned it again, I'd still see another thing. But it's that same diamond that's producing that light through each uh, of the turns. And the Bible is just like this. When we turn the Bible and we look at it from different angles, we see different things going on. And that's because the Bible was written by really, really smart people. It wasn't just written by these like, people who like, we, like, are like, oh, they're like shepherds. They were just like, writing down like, the things that Moses did. They were really advanced writers. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project calls these people literary ninjas, literary ninjas. And the reason he calls them literary ninjas is because they take all these characters, all these themes, and they morph them into this huge story that all points to the coming Messiah who we as Christians believe is Jesus. In any story in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, there's usually more going on than the eye can see at first. And today, I think that teaches us that God is our provider, our teacher, and our redeemer. Those are the things that we're going to see in this passage today and how each of these things points ultimately to the Messiah, Jesus. So the first one, provider. If you guys get nothing else from my sermon today, know that God is provider. I think if I read this story to a five-year-old, they'd maybe get this if their reading comprehension was decent, that God is providing food for his people. That's the main point of this story. Israel, at this point, they've exodusted after, uh, you know, they got out of Egypt, like Tyler said last week, that's kind of a hard verb to say. I don't think it's a real verb. That's probably why. Uh, but they've gotten out of Egypt, and now they're in this in-between space between Egypt and the Promised Land, and God has to figure out a way to get them there safely. But right now, they're in this horrible place. It's, like, horribly barren. There's no food anywhere. There's not really water. There's a little bit in some places, but it doesn't even taste good. And they're in this horrible place. And it reminds me of... Uh, the past couple weeks, I've gone to California a couple times, and I've gone to San Diego both of those times and taken Interstate 8 both out and back. And the, the thing about when you're, have you guys made that drive from like San Diego back to Phoenix on Interstate 8? It's kind of a weird drive because you start out in San Diego. It's beautiful. It's like San Diego is like the Garden of Eden. It's like just the best place to be in the world, I think. It's one of my favorite places. And it's super lush. There's like the ocean mist, and it's like this cool like tropical ocean biome. And then you like kind of go farther up, and then like it starts to turn into this like high desert thing, and you get into like Alpine uh, on Sandy in, on the I-8, and there's like pine trees, and you're like, whoa, where am I? And then you like get up top, and it's like you're in Prescott. There's like manzanita forest everywhere, and then all of a sudden you get to this place called Myers Gulch, and boom, all the plants disappear. There's nothing out there. I was just driving there, and I was just like where did all the plants go? Like, we were just in California, we were just in all this, like, lusciousness, and then all of a sudden, the plants disappear, and it looks just like this. This is a picture of the wilderness that Israel was in, but this just looks just like Interstate 8, uh, if you uh, ha have made that drive before. Just horrible. Like, there's, like, maybe two plants, and I don't think they're edible, uh, so if you're looking for food out here, you're screwed. Uh, so that takes us into our story today. We're starting in verse 1. Uh, Exodus 16, verse 1, says this. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. 
And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Dang. Uh, if I'm Moses, I'm like, I don't know about this God. I think I might like, just like, you know, make a U-turn, head back to Egypt, give up on those people. But then the Lord said to Moses, chill. No, he says, behold. I think that's like, kind of like the King James version of chill. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And then it says, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness, so like on the edge of their camp, there's this fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to, another, said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. I like how they put that in there. It's like, I, I know why they said, what is it? Because they don't know what it is. That's obvious. Anyways, and Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each gather it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer. I don't know what that is. It's something uh, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. In this story, we get this super simple pattern. God's people cry out for something, and God gives them the thing. God's people ask for bread, and they ask for meat, and he gives them literally both of those things right there in that verse. And this is a pattern we see throughout the Old Testament, and even in the book of Exodus. The reason that they're here in the first place, even though they kind of regret it now, as we see in the beginning of our passage, the reason they're here in the first place is because they cried out for deliverance from the Egyptians, and God gave them exactly that. We see this throughout the Old Testament of God's people crying out and God answering them. God's people asking for something, God gives that thing to them. And God can't help but do this because his nature is generous provider. God's nature, guys, is generous provider. God, throughout all of scripture, he just like constantly is blessing people. Like the, the, the clothes that I have on, they're a blessing from God. The fact that I have like breath in my lungs is a gift from God. This whole world, even though it's like really hot outside right now, it's a generous gift from God. Everything around us is because of God, God's nature as generous provider. And I think God as provider is most clearly seen for us in the person of Jesus. For example, Jesus, in his human nature, when he was teaching his disciples about God, he said that God is our provider and that we don't need to worry about anything in our life. He, he used this example of sparrows, and I don't know if you guys know what sparrows are. They're kind of just like small birds. They're basically worthless. Like if you hit them with your car, you'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, and then you kind of move on with your day. Like you probably wouldn't feel that bad. So sparrows kind of like this worthless bird. And God, he says, provides food for them. They don't have storehouses. They don't have to like check the economy. They don't have to like check their stocks every day. Like how's my seed stock doing today? Like is it doing good? Is it doing bad? I'm going to fret about that. No. Birds just go out and they exist knowing that God is going to provide food for them each and every single day. And if sparrows, this worthless creature, God's providing food for them, how much more is he going to provide food for you guys who are God's image-bearing creatures, who he loves, who he died for, and he's just going to like, he's going to make sure you guys are okay. So that's what Jesus is saying with the birds. And then furthermore, in his divine nature, Jesus also acts as our provider. He acts as God, as Jehovah Jireh, as God provider. And there's a story where this 
these like kids hand him like these loaves, like like five loaves and like a couple fish, and he feeds like five thousand people with them. It's insane, and it's so crazy that like it's recorded in multiple gospels, which you, you like you know that like they're like okay, we need to like make sure this gets in, even though it's kind of like a copy of the other ones. So Jesus, in his divine nature, he feeds people literal bread, just like in this story. And then finally, Jesus mysteriously is our daily bread. He is the sustenance and the bread from heaven that we need to, need to eat. Jesus, on multiple occasions, said, I am the bread of life, or I am the bread that came down from heaven. He is this manna that God is giving us. And it's because his presence nourishes us and sustains us. Everything we need, everything that we want to be in life is wrapped up in Christ. And if we have Christ, we have the whole world. But beyond being our provider in this passage, we also witness God acting as our teacher. God is our teacher. Specifically, through the practice of Sabbath, which we'll talk about in just a second, God is teaching Israel to unlearn the habits of Egyptian slavery and to learn new habits of grace. God is teaching Israel to unlearn all their bad habits of Egyptian slavery and to learn new habits of grace through this practice of Sabbath. So we'll pick up in verse 22, 16, 22. It says this, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil. All that is left over is laid aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it either. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, the people Sabbathed well, and they listened to everything that God told them to do. No. Uh, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth, days, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place, and let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. What's going on here? Why do these Israelites, like, why can they not just take a day off and trust that God is going to provide for them each and every single day? And I think it's because Israel, like Tyler mentioned last week, they're in this painful process of transformation of going from slaves to freedmen, of going from people who don't own their time to people who do own their time. And in this freedom, they're confused at what to do with themselves. And God transforms them through this practice of Sabbath. Sabbath, if you guys don't know, is this 24-hour period that's, uh, of time set aside each and every week for resting, delighting, and worshiping God and abstaining from work and all worldly stuff is what like some catechism says. But basically, you like have fun with God and then you don't work. That's kind of like, that's like my youth pastor definition right there. And Sabbath, for the, for the Israelites in this passage, it's basically them just abstaining from gathering food because they're not really working. They're out in the middle of the desert. They're kind of on vacation for 40 years, even though it's a pretty rough vacation. It doesn't end well. Um, but anyways, they're kind of like not doing much work. And so this is the only work that they can abstain from is gathering the manna that God is giving them. And Sabbath later became this keystone habit for the people of Israel. Up to this day, it shapes the people of Israel and people who consider themselves Jewish. It shaped their view of God, and it shaped their view of themselves. Here's why. Through the practice of Sabbath, 
Israel was learning to embody the gospel of salvation by grace alone, while rejecting the false narratives of earned worth that the world relentlessly promotes. Through Sabbath, Israel was learning the gospel. Why is that? It's because Sabbath teaches us that the most important thing about us is not what we can do, not, what, not all our money, not all of our possessions, not our status at, job, uh, at our job, but it's about what God has already done for us. We are human beings before we're human doings. In the economic system of Egypt, it all revolved around making sure that Pharaoh and his government were well supplied with grain and whatever to uh, ward off any famine and to give them more worldly power. And in this system, the Israelites are at the bottom class. They're slaves to the, uh, the Pharaoh. And so they are working seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. They never get a single day off. They're working day in and day out, and they're working in this like brick factory, and they like take the straw away. I don't know why the straw, you need straw in your bricks. I'd rather like if I got a brick at my house and there was straw coming out of it, I'd be like, that's not right. But apparently it was important. So they're working in like as like brick, brick manufacturers, and uh, it's, it's horrible work. Like it's really hot in Egypt. They're like, imagine if it was like that hot right now, and I'm like told you like, go collect some mud, make it into bricks. It'd be horrible. And then imagine doing that every single day. They're in this horrible process of slavery, and it's in this system that values the profit of what somebody can contribute to Egypt's economic system over their value as people. It was more important for Pharaoh to be honored than anybody else. There was this horrible system that didn't care about who you were as a person. It just cared what you could do for them. But in Jewish and Christian theology, the true worth of a person, despite what, what even our society says to us this day, the true worth of a person, it doesn't lie in their economic contribution. It doesn't lie in what you can do for the, the country of Egypt. It doesn't lie in what you can do for the United States of America or your company or your family, but it lies, our worth is in our irrevocable likeness to our creator. It's that we were made in God's image. That's where our value comes from. And God as teacher, used this weekly practice of Sabbath to shape Israel into the people they were made to be, God's blessing to the world. And these people were to be people who found their rest, delight, and worship in God alone and not in worldly securities. Sabbath, for us, is this true reminder of our identity. It reminds us each and every single week that I am saved by grace alone. It is what God does for me first. This is a gift. This whole life is a gift. I don't earn anything. And all of my life flows out of that. It's the first day of the week, and it pushes us into the rest of our, our week. So why is God pushing Sabbath, this cool practice? I think it's a cool practice, but why is he pushing it on these people he just met, uh, basically? Like, these people didn't really know God a couple of years ago. Why is he pushing this practice on them? It's because, it's because God wasn't interested in just rescuing slaves and giving them free bread. God wasn't just interested in social liberation and providing easy-to-access food for this people. No. God had a bigger mission in mind. He was forming a people who would redeem the whole world from sin and death. God was making a people who would redeem the whole world from sin and death. And more on that in our next point. Uh, what does this practice of Sabbath look like for us today? My wife, uh, Bella, and I, she's over here. It was just her 25th birthday this Thursday. Uh, we, uh, we've been married for four years now. But when we first met, uh, we started practicing Sabbath for some reason. Um, I remember like a month into our relationship, I heard about this practice of Sabbath from this podcast, and I'm like, 
hey, baby, you want to practice this, like, ancient Jewish thing where we, like, rest the light and worship in God? And she's like, yeah, that sounds fun. And, yeah, uh, first, yeah we're, we're weird like that. Like, we just, like, we, we started Sabbathing, and, like, right, like, a month into our relationship. And I remember, like, it was just so transformative for me. Like, stopping and resting and delighting in God one day a week. It's like a really simple practice. You're actually trying to do less than do more. I would just show up on Saturdays or Sundays, depending on which day was Sabbath thing that week. And it was just incredible what God would do. I remember one Saturday or Sunday in particular, I was just sitting on the couch of this house that I was living in. And I remember looking out the window and all of a sudden, this butterfly just starts, like, kind of, like, flapping. And, like, it's, like, slow motion. It's, like, in a movie. And then I just see it, like, land on, like, the, the branch. And I'm, like, wow, God's world is, like, filled with beauty and delight and love. And then, like, I just felt like God's presence, like, hit me. It was just, like, weird moment. Like, I could never come up with that moment myself. I think, like, butterflies are kind of, like, just ugly or, like, pretty moths. Like, I normally don't find, like, beauty in nature like that. But what happened is that I had stopped enough for God to show me who I was and who, what the world he created was like. Sabbath was this reminder of my true identity. And from our last point, God being our provider, I think that's really awesome that God is our provider. But our relationship with God can't stop there. I need God to be more than just a provider for me. I need him to be my teacher. Left to my own devices, guys, I'm not going to live a good life. I'm not going to follow Jesus. I'm not going to do the things that God wants me to do. I need somebody to come along and show me how to experience life that is truly life. Otherwise, I'm screwed. God isn't solely here for our blessing, but our total and complete transformation. And I think God as our teacher is best seen in the person of Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate teacher. This is kind of obvious, but Jesus was called rabbi by the people closest to him, and he taught people how to experience a new type of life found in the kingdom of God. He invited people to follow him to see how he did life differently than everybody else around them, and he, he was teaching them truths about the kingdom of God the entire time. He showed them how to be truly human. But God and Jesus are more than just our provider and teacher. God is our redeemer. Okay, this is the third point, Redeemer. God, in this passage, is redeeming Israel and through them the entire world. God is redeeming Israel and through them the entire world. And this might be kind of confusing. You're like, this is a story about God providing food and like quail for these people. What does this have to do with God redeeming the world? And we have to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 to understand what's going on here. In Genesis 1, God creates this beautiful, abundant world uh, and it's teeming with abundance and just, like, so much potential. And God makes these humans to be in charge of it, and he puts them in this beautiful garden in Genesis chapter 2. He creates this beautiful garden for them to exist in. And it's a really good setup, guys. Like, it's got fruit trees everywhere, it says. There's, like, rivers with stones. I don't know why the, the rivers have to have, like, stones in them, but apparently that, like, meant something to them. Uh, there's, like, rivers with stones. There's, like, trees everywhere. There's, like, a cool breeze. It's not, like, 118 degrees out like it is today in Phoenix. It's a pretty good setup. And I think, I imagine the fruit would be pretty good. Like, I really love produce, and so I'm kind of, like, picky with my produce. Like, if an apple doesn't taste good, I'm like, mm, nah, I'm not going to eat that. Like, what, you know when you're, like, going through the cafeteria line, and, like, there's, like, an orange, and you eat the orange, and it's, like, just tastes like sour nothingness? Like, that's not what the fruit, like, is here. It's, like, perfect fruit every single time. Like, sprouts level 
kind of produce. And uh, what happens is that th there's like one catch to this whole abundance thing. There's one catch. The humans, they have to trust God for this abundance. They can't get this abundance themselves. This abundance is coming from God, so they have to trust that God has their best interest in mind and loves them. And what ends up happening in the story is that a snake gets into the garden, and he talks to the woman. For some reason, the snake's talking. I don't know what's going on there. But uh, the snake is talking to the woman, and he says, hey, I know you got a pretty good setup right now, but I don't think God has your best interest in mind, and I think you should look out for yourself. I think you should take from that fruit of the tree that God told you specifically not to eat because he doesn't actually love you. And she believed him, and she ate it. She gave it to her husband. He did the same exact thing. And what happens is that God sees the humans making this decision that they want abundance on their own terms. They want to provide for themselves instead of like God providing for them. And what happens is that God gives them exactly that. God hands them over to the scarcity in the world around them, and a curse falls on the ground because of what they did. He says, you want to provide, you want to find abundance and provision on your own terms? Sure. Here you go. Good luck without me. And this seeking abundance on our own terms, not trusting God for what we need, but instead trying to seek it out ourselves and hurting others in the process is a fundamental human problem. It affects every single one of us. On October 29th, 2018, Lion Air Flight 610 took off from an airport in Indonesia and crashed into the ocean just eight minutes after takeoff. It was flying a Boeing 737 MAX 8 airplane, and that was like basically brand new at the time. And then six months later, on March 10th, 2019, Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 crashed in a similar way and left this huge crater in the ground. Both of these incidents were involving a Boeing 737 MAX 8 airplane, brand new aircraft at the time, and this kind of crash within two months of each other is completely unheard of in modern aviation history with a brand new plane. They were trying to figure out what was going on, and as the investigators were looking into it, it turned out that there was this system that Boeing didn't inform the pilots or the airlines of, that if it went wrong, if it malfunctioned, it would give the pilots 10 seconds to react and then if they didn't react in time to the system properly, they would um, go into a nosedive that would be irrecoverable. That's what happened with both of these planes. And it's because Boeing, when, if they disclosed the system to the, the airline companies and the pilots, they would have had, that would have uh, triggered more trainings for the pilots, which would have reduced Boeing's uh, stock share. It would have uh, taken out of their revenue if they disclosed this information that they needed training on this plane. And so they withheld it. And they got a ton of money from it. They got hundreds, almost thousands of orders for this airplane because they didn't disclose this information. But what was happening underneath was they were seeking abundance on their own terms, and those pictures were the cost of it. When we seek abundance on our own terms, it causes chaos, scarcity, and this disorder in the world that we live in. And that's why God wants us to trust him for our abundance. But God sees this problem. He knows how broken we are. He knows that we all do this in one way or another, whether it's using AI to do your homework or like cutting corners on like a, a business thing. I don't know how businesses work, but I imagine people can cut corners and do stuff. Uh, cutting corners or whatever, or lying to somebody because we want to get abundance on our own terms. We don't want to trust that God is actually going to take care of us, so we take matters into our own hands instead. 
We all do this. But God sees how broken we are. He sees how messed up we are, and he makes a plan to fix it. He makes this covenant with this guy named Abraham, and he says, I will bless and redeem the whole world through you and through your family. And this family becomes, uh, gets passed down, and it becomes Jacob, cool name, uh, and then that Jacob becomes the people of Israel, the, the people we see in this story today. And God is using this people of Israel to redeem the entire world from sin and death that, their, that Adam and Eve's decision led us all into. But before they get started on this journey, on this in-between space between Egypt and the promised land, God wants to put them to the test. He, wanna, he wants to make sure that they're not going to just be a repeat of the same story that it was before. And so he gives them this whole thing of Sabbath, and he says, okay, I, I want you to follow these rules, and then if you just follow these rules, we'll, we'll, we'll be good. And it's a pretty easy test, like, just don't go outside today. Easy. Like, I can do that. I would love to just, like, stay inside today because it's, like, really hot outside. Imagine it was hot out for them. And he puts them to the test to see if they will rebel against him like Adam and Eve did. But what happens? They fail. The, the Sabbath doesn't actually happen. People go out to collect food, and they break God's law. So what should happen next? With Adam and Eve, this is what happened. Can you put up that slide? So there's a blessing. They're in the garden. They failed the test. So what should happen next? The blessing should go away, and there's a curse instead. That's, what, that's like a pattern we see in the Bible with God so often with people that this is justice. They, you, you, here's a good thing. You act in a way that shows that you don't deserve that good thing, and then what happens is it's taken away. But in this story, we see the gospel at work, guys. We see a blessing, we see a failed test, and then God continues to bless his people even though they're sinful and messed up and that they don't love him. The conditions, guys, for their provision were not met, and they should, they should have lost out. The provision should have stopped, and the Israelites should have faced the consequences of seeking abundance on their own terms, and the story ends right then and there. Exodus only goes up to chapter 16, book closed. But that's not what happens. The manna never stops. Flash forward to verses 32 and 35, and it says that the people of Israel, this is kind of like the author adding a little thing at the end of the story, way after the fact, it says this, the people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable, habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Guys, you're going to continue reading Exodus, and you're going to see the Israelites dropping the ball time and time and time again. God gives them a law, they break that law. God gives them a blessing, they're like, no thanks. The Israelites are the sinful, messed up people just like we are. And they continue to mess up. But God's blessing doesn't stop because of their screw-ups. God's blessing is so much bigger than their screw-ups that they're able to eat the manna for 40 years even though they don't deserve it. God continued to provide abundance for people who clearly didn't trust him for their provision. They went out to try to grab it against his rules and against his laws. Why does God do this? Why would he act in this crazy way? It's because of the covenant he made with Abraham. It's the covenant he made with Abraham. God was committed to redeeming the whole world in spite of their sin. God didn't care what they did. It was about this mission that they were a part of, and that God wanted to redeem all of humanity from the sin and death that we had entangled ourselves in. God is committed to his purposes and uh, promises of redemption in the world, and will continue to patiently work with people who time and time 
let him down. You and me, when we let God down, it bothers him. Don't get me wrong. God doesn't like it when we rebel against him. But his love is so much bigger than that, that he's willing to work with people who mess up time and time again. This faithful promise, this covenant love, it comes to full life in Jesus. And and here's one reason why. The ancestors of Jesus, they are in this crowd. The great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus are these people that God is providing food for. At least one reason that God is providing food for these people is so that Jesus would have a family line to be born into. The Messiah would have a family that is sustained because of only the grace of God. And this Jesus, he would one day go to a cross to redeem my sin, to redeem your sin. He takes off all our selfishness, all the ways that we seek our own good instead of the good of others, the way we hurt other people. He takes that and he puts it to death on a cross. And he says, you don't have to worry about that anymore because you're walking with me now. Jesus, guys, is our ultimate redeemer. And just like God covered over the failings of the Israelites in the desert time and time again, and he continued to provide food for them, Jesus Christ died on a cross so that we don't have to face the consequences of sin that we deserve. We don't have to face the consequences of all the bad things that we did because Jesus died on a cross for us. The entire Bible, guys, is a message of salvation by grace alone. It's all salvation by grace alone, from page one to the end of Revelation. God, as our provider, for example, in this story, he graciously provides bread that we don't deserve. God, as our teacher, shows us a new way of life that we would have never found without him. And God, as our redeemer, covers over our sin and grants us eternal life by grace alone. There's three invitations for us today. The first thing is, God is our provider. Uh, If you guys need something, tell God about it. He loves to hear what you need. He loves to answer prayers, but he's not, it's, it's really hard for, for God to answer prayers that don't exist. So if you guys have something you need in your life, let God know, and he'd love to provide that for you. It doesn't happen every time, but when I pray, more coincidences happen than they don't. When I pray, things generally happen. It's crazy, and it's not because of what I'm doing. It's because God is good. And the second invitation is start practicing a weekly Sabbath. Sabbath, is again, is this thing where we come and we worship God one day a week, and we rest and we delight in God, and we put away all of our work, and we trust that God is going to provide for us in that season. It shapes us, and it shapes our view of God and our view of ourselves. It's this hard practice. You can start out with just like maybe six or 12 hours of like putting away stuff, uh, but eventually it's good to work up to a 24-hour Sabbath where you just set aside a day a week to be with God and to be with the people around you who you love. So start practicing a weekly Sabbath. And the third thing is, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus right now, if all of this is kind of like new stuff to you, you've never heard of Jesus being your redeemer, you've never really believed it, but today you do, this is an invitation for you to put your faith in Jesus as your redeemer, to trust that God is working out in your story for the good and that God hasn't given up on you yet. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter where you came from, God is your redeemer, and he'll never give up on you until the day you die. God is right there waiting at the door, waiting for you. We're going to take 15 seconds to sit in silence and reflect on these these questions. And after that, the service is going to close a little differently. The band isn't going to come back up. 
I'm going to read a passage uh, from Romans that I think really highlights this like unstoppable love that God has for us. And I'm going to have everybody stand up, and I'll close you with a benediction. But first, we'll sit in silence for 15 seconds and just ponder these questions. from Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God is our provider, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen people? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, would you guys stand as I read a blessing over you? May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen.